Hey, it's me, Lars Larson. Thanks for checking out my podcast, and be sure to tell a friend about The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Tuesday. Glad to get to your phone calls and emails. You know how Joe Biden solves a big, impending, nationwide rail strike in America? He asks the Congress to do the job for him. I want to get into the details of that in just a moment. And I know that some of you are union members. I know that because some of you send me emails. You know that I'm not a fan of unions. I don't want to be in a union. I don't want to be forced to be in a union. That has already happened to me. I've already seen that movie. I know how it ends. On the other hand, I don't mind if you're a member of a union. If you decide that your work is worth no more or no less than any of your union brethren, Good for you. That's your choice. It's your decision. But when Joe Biden says, I want the Congress to force down the throats of union members a deal that at least four of the 12 National Railroad Workers Unions in America have already said no to, that's going too far. But I'll get into that in just a moment. First, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. If you'd like to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here every single day, and you can be part of it. It always makes a better dialogue than a monologue at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Naysayers always go to the head of the line, by the way. That's been true for more than 25 years. It'll stay true as long as I'm behind this mic. And if you want to send me an email, I get a lot of naysayers that way. Talk at LarsLarson.com. Doesn't get much easier than that. And I'll tell you what the Twitter poll is in just a moment. couple of late developments, though. Uh, the United States has beaten Iran in soccer, if you care about soccer. I don't care that much about soccer, but I love to see the United States win whenever it's possible. And, of course, the Iranians made a big to-do about the fact that one of their flags was displayed without the Republic of Iran on it by U.S. soccer. And then they started asking a lot of crazy questions of the soccer coach the other day, like, when are you going to move the U.S. Navy ships uh, off our coastline? I'm not sure that's exactly a soccer kind of thing to ask about. The other one, and more seriously, within the last couple of hours, Stuart Rhodes has been found guilty. And if you're wondering, well, who's Stuart Rhodes? He's the head of a group called the Oath Keepers. He's been found guilty of a very rarely used federal charge called seditious conspiracy. It means conspiring to attempt the overthrow of the United States government. Now, I think it's important that you know that's happened. There are a number of other people who are also charged with seditious conspiracy, including Enrique Terrio of the Proud Boys. He's actually been on this show a number of times. We've talked to him about the Proud Boys, the so-called white supremacy group that was headed by Enrique Terrio, a Cuban-American. Not exactly like your conventional white supremacist group when 20% of its membership is people of color. But then again, most of the news media who talk about the Oath Keepers don't know what they're talking about anyway. But it sounds as though with the conviction of Stuart Rhodes, that may be some bad news for people like Enrique Terrio. The good news part of that story is something I've pointed out to you before. This is the Joe Biden DOJ bringing seditious conspiracy charges against the Oath Keepers, uh, Stuart Rhodes, uh, Enrique Terrio, and a few others. And what they say these groups planned to do was that they conspired so that they could be called upon by Donald Trump if necessary, to take over the U.S. government by in a military coup is what it amounts to. The significant thing, though, for me is, and remember, this is the Biden DOJ, this is Merrick Garland, 
a guy of questionable moral character, if you ask me. They never made the case that Trump was involved in the conspiracy. As much as you might believe that, because you watch CNN or MSNBC or you read the New York Times or the Washington Post, the Biden DOJ never even tried to make the case that Donald Trump was involved in the conspiracy. And they say, but these guys were doing it in case Donald Trump called on them. Yeah, but Donald Trump didn't know what was going on. Now, you know who did know what was going on? The FBI says it knew that these plans were in place days or weeks ahead of January 6th. And the FBI, at least at the time and still today, say that they warned the Capitol Police, run by none other than Nancy Pelosi, there is trouble coming on January 6th. And if your next question is, well, Lars, didn't they prepare for that trouble? No, they let the trouble happen. And why would they do that? Why would Nancy Pelosi say, we want to go ahead and let some terrible things happen? They didn't have any idea what was going to happen. Let's let some terrible things happen on January 6th. Why would somebody do that? And my theory from the get-go has been that Nancy Pelosi wanted what happened on January 6th. Even when she didn't know what January 6th was going to amount to, she knew if there was trouble coming, well, that's a crisis. And you never let a good crisis go to waste. What did she do with what happened on January 6th? She attempted an illegal and unconstitutional impeachment of Donald Trump. It didn't work. He was acquitted by the U.S. Senate, but she attempted it anyway. She got the excuse that she wanted. Now, let's go back to Joe Biden for just a moment, and I'll tell you what's going on with the strike uh, information. There is the very real possibility of a nationwide rail workers strike on the 5th of December coming up just days from now. And that would have a terrible effect. We already have supply chain problems in this country. A nationwide rail workers strike, they estimate, would have a downward effect on the economy of more than $2 billion a day. Now, a couple of months ago, back in September, Joe Biden said, I'm the one who's going to solve this problem. And he walks into a meeting for half an hour where the sides, you know, management and labor, had been meeting and discussing these contracts for months. He walks out about a half an hour later, and he tells the world, you see, I solved the rail workers' strike. Well, he solved it until the election was over. And as soon as the election was over, four of the major rail worker unions said, we're not taking that deal. That deal is a terrible deal. Now, whether you believe it's a terrible deal or not, what is Joe Biden doing now? Last night, just about the end of the program, I started seeing headlines. Joe Biden acts to head off nationwide rail workers strike. And I thought, what the heck is Joe Biden doing? Is he actually going to use the authority he already has in law to bring about an end to the workers strike or potential strike? And the answer was no, Joe's not going to do that. Joe doesn't believe that this is a heavy lifting kind of job being president of the United States. No, what Joe Biden said was he turned around and said, hey, I'm going to stop the rail workers strike. And then he turns to the Congress and says, you folks pass a law that says that union members must accept the deal that we worked out back in September. In other words, Joe Biden, Democrat, wants his friends in the Democrat Congress, because it's still a Democrat Congress until January, to tell union members, you don't have any choice. You must take the deal that was worked out, whether you like the deal or not. Now, that's a little bit of a change of pace for the Democrats. Usually the Democrats do what the unions want. 
And the unions do what the Democrats want. But in this case, a Democrat president is proposing that Congress pass a law to force unionized rail workers to take the contract that four of their unions just rejected. If that makes sense to you, I'd be glad to hear the naysayer call at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Coming up, we've got to talk about China and America's biggest threat. And the Chi-Coms are working to triple their nuclear stockpile. We'll get to that in just a moment on the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your phone calls and your emails. You know, from their economy to their military, China has become the biggest threat to the United States of America as the Chinese Communist government tries to eclipse the United States, not just economically, militarily, diplomatically, and in every other way on planet Earth. But now we're hearing word that they may try to triple their nuclear stockpile in just the next few years. Uh, Frank Gaffney joins me now for the founder of the Center for Security Policy in Washington, D.C. Frank, you and I have talked over the years, many years, about the fact that the United States has allowed its nuclear stockpile to age, maybe to the point where we're not even sure the weapons we still have actually will work if called upon. Welcome back to the program, by the way. It's good to be with you. Thank you. And yes, that's been a concern of mine for a long time. The last time we tested in a realistic way, namely in an underground controlled explosion, our nuclear arsenal was in 1992. Well, I don't know how many other things in life that you think are really important that you want to count on, like, well, nuclear deterrence, that you would let you know, um, go 30 years yeah, for 30 odd years. Um, but that's what we've done. Now we've done simulations and modeling and computer analyses and that sort of thing, but that's fundamentally informed guesswork. And it's very worrying because none of those weapons, not a one of them that's in our arsenal today was designed to have been in the arsenal for this long, let alone without testing to assure that they they work. So this is really concerning, and it's doubly so because it's not just the Chinese that are building up their nuclear forces. Uh, And honestly, we don't have a clue how many nuclear weapons they have at the moment. So when somebody says they're going to triple their force without a baseline, who knows what that number would actually be. But the Russians have been doing it too. Both of them have been aggressively modernizing their weapon systems Last time I heard, it was something like 22 or 24 different missile and uh, other kinds of nuclear bombs and and weapon systems have been introduced into the Russian arsenal in the past couple of years. Their modernization is essentially complete now. The Chinese have, uh, we think, a somewhat smaller program, but it's moving forward, too. And here's, here's a kicker. Here's a fun fact to know and tell or actually be frightened by. Lars, in the... Chinese uh, Communist Party's nuclear program is apparently about 3,000 kilometers of hardened underground tunnels. Yep. In which we think probably are nuclear weapons. What would you build all of that for? I mean, it's the most unbelievable, you know, uh, civil engineering project in history. 
uh, not civil, military engineering project in history. And it's almost certainly concealing large numbers of uh, nuclear missiles and bombs and who knows, maybe factories as well. So this is this is a country that's deadly serious about building up their nuclear threat to us. And I fear that one of the things that is uh, is in play is if we are not adequately deterring them, they may think they could use them with impunity. Well, and, and Frank, uh, the, the thing I was referring to was a report that apparently the Pentagon sent to the Congress today. And they say that the stockpiles in China, at least this is what the Pentagon says, has 400 or more warheads right now. But that the Chinese plan to expand that stockpile and that they want to take it to around 1,500 warheads by 2035. Now, whether that's accurate, whether it's on target, maybe that's just for public consumption, and that's what the Pentagon is putting out there for whatever reason, because every time a government, any government, releases information, I don't always assume the information is accurate, even if it's coming from our our own government. But when they put it out there that the Chinese are planning to triple it, or perhaps more than triple it, uh, that seems concerning. The underground uh, way of hiding missiles seems particularly concerning. You remember the whole debate in the United States over what would, if I remember right, it was the MX missile system. And the idea was to have missiles Correct. where unlike, you know, the silos in North Dakota and other places around America, where you say, well, we've got, uh, you know, these, these silos and they're hardened, but, but the bad guys to a large extent probably knew about where those silos were. But if you could move your missiles around and no, the other guys never had a way of knowing, you know, where your missiles were, then you could keep them safer from being countered, uh, by, by the, the other guys, whoever the other guys happen to be. In, in our case, we decided not to go with the MX missile system, uh, at least the way it was originally conceived. But if you're saying the Chinese have this, then they have all these weapons and we have no effective way to counter it because we don't actually know where they are at any given minute. Yeah, that's that's basically right. Um, the 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 operative point in the in the phrase that you just reported from the Pentagon is they have four hundred or more. <laughs> and the right. question yeah. is, I'm saying how many more? And I think it's probably considerably more, especially if you just follow the logic. Uh, you don't build three thousand miles of hardened underground tunnels to conceal 400 nuclear weapons. You just don't do it. So how many more it is, anybody's guess, what three times or four times or five times that number will be, anybody's guess. What I'm just saying is I think what we've got to get our head around is they're continuing to build. We haven't built anything in the way of a new nuclear weapon since I left the Pentagon in 1988. And that's a chilling fact that I think most Americans are unaware of. And it raises a question of, will the ones that we have work? Of course, that's first and foremost. But will they be sufficient deterrence to aggression by one or the other of these bad guys? Or who knows, even the North Koreans who are now brandishing intercontinental ballistic missiles with nuclear weapons capable of arranging our entire country. And the Iranians are shortly going to have similar kinds of capabilities, I fear. So all of this is the sort of thing that um, I'm quite sure most of your listeners are saying, wait a minute, this this can't possibly be true. We've got adults who've been in charge of these programs all these years. And the answer is, well, um, they've not done their job. If they are adults, uh, that's another question. But they've not done the job that we need them to do to maintain our deterrence. But but correct me if I'm wrong. Those adults 
have to go over to Cong- to Capitol Hill and ask the Congress, hey, we'd like to modernize these weapon systems. And then the Congress has to say yes to the money. And there's not just the money issue, but there's also the issue that I'm sure there are a good number, mostly on the left, mostly on the Democrat side, who say, no, we don't want you to have nuclear weapons at all. The last thing we're going to do is let you modernize your nuclear weapons so they can be around for more decades. Now, I think that's foolish. I think Democrats are frequently foolish. But do you imagine that's part of the problem, that even the man or woman working at the Pentagon or in the Department of Defense uh, or the Energy Department, which takes charge of some of this stuff, would say, yeah, we'd like to modernize these. Congress won't give us the money, either for for money reasons or for philosophical reasons. Yeah, that's fair. That's to some extent been a problem over the years. But uh, frankly, on um, a lot of these budgets, uh, the executive branch hasn't asked for the money. We we still have not asked for money to modernize Worthy a single point. nuclear warhead. Not a single nuclear warhead. We're going to put new missiles, new submarines, and so on into the force eventually, a new bomber. But not a single new nuclear weapon has been ordered or asked for, let alone funded and built. So that's kind of the problem here, and it's the sort of thing that I think we need a public debate about right quick because we're facing nuclear threats that are growing by the day and are now being made more and more explicit by people like Vladimir Putin, who, by the way, Lars, exercises personally the first launch of nuclear weapons against this country and simulated attacks with regularity. That's sort of a sign that this is a bad bad bit of business for us. And for another day, Frank, the thing I'd like to have a public debate on is, is Joe Biden currently compromised uh, with his son's business ties to China? And, his t- and the ties of the Biden crime family. We spent years debating whether or not Donald Trump was a Russian mole or elected by Putin or whatever, or under control of and favoring Vladimir Putin. I'd like to know today, is Joe Biden compromised by all the monies that came from the Chinese communist government to his son and from his son to the big guy? You've got the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Tuesday. If you want to jump into the best conversation and talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. And why is it that the Joe Biden administration thought it was so important to make every agency of federal government some kind of display of its virtue by bringing people into jobs, not because of their skills and abilities, the kind of criteria that, say, Dr. King or even yours truly would believe in, hire people based on what they know how to do, but instead based on how they check a box. Case in point, Sam Brinton, who is what is described as, and this is the way Sam Brinton describes self, uh, it's hard to even work your way around the language on this, a non-binary drag queen appointed to the Department of Energy under President Joe Biden. So why would we care about Sam Brinton? Sam Brinton's actual day job at the Department of Energy was to be the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Office of Spent Nuclear Fuel and Waste Disposition. In other words, exactly the kind of mid-level bureaucrat that nobody pays attention to. Except for this. It turns out that sometime this summer, Sam Brinton stole a bag. The bag was a piece of luggage at an airport. And you should know this happened back in June. Sam Brinton, 
who is still apparently in the job of DOE Department Assistant, Deputy, Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Office of Spent Fuel and Waste, uh, walked into the Minneapolis-St. Paul airport or got off an airplane for which Sam Brinton, I can't say she, I can't say he, uh, although, I don't know, your guess is as good as mine, walked off an airplane having checked no luggage and then went to baggage claim to pick up some luggage. The luggage, I think Sam Brinton knew full well, did not belong to Sam Brinton, the drag queen, non-binary, so you've got to use the pronoun they. She says she accidentally stole a bag. Now, I've heard from people since we mentioned this story last night and since the story first broke, if you work for the federal government, I've had people write to me uh, who are former federal employees, and they said, heck, when I worked at the federal government, if you got so much as a reckless or careless driving ticket, your job as a federal employee might be forfeit. Well, there was a complaint filed in late October that said that Brenton was caught on surveillance, surveillance footage taking a bag full of clothing that the owner of the bag valued at around $2,400 and walked out of the door with it, took the tag off the bag that would have identified the real owner, who was very unhappy to find out that her clothing had been stolen by Sam Brenton. Sam Brenton then took the bag by his or her own account, took the clothing out of it and continued to use the fairly expensive, it's about a $500 piece of luggage, um, took the luggage and continued to use it for several more trips. So, I mean, I understand you, you could be standing at baggage claim. I've done it a hundred times myself. And you could look at a bag and say, that looks like my bag. No, no, it has the wrong tag on it. I've even occasionally picked up a bag thinking it was mine. I look at the name on it. It doesn't belong to me. But this Sam Brenton, who was put into a job, I think, by Joe Biden and his government because Sam Brenton checked a box. As you notice, the Biden administration is very proud of the fact that they have the first transgender this and the first transgender that and the first non-binary this and the first non-binary that. I mean, even when it came to a Supreme Court appointing appointment, uh, Katenji Brown Jackson was put into a job and they said, why, she's the first person of color on the Supreme Court. Well, no, she's not. Uh, that that happened decades ago. Well, she's the first woman on the court. No, she's not the first woman on the court. Well, she's the first person of color who is also a woman on the Supreme Court. The Biden administration seems focused, almost obsessed with the idea of putting people into jobs, not because of what they know how to do, not because of their skills and abilities, but because of their particular unusual nature, in this case, a non-binary drag queen who is put into this job, walks into an airport or walks off an airplane having not checked any luggage. If you don't check any luggage, there's no reason to go to baggage claim, I guess, unless you've decided to go in and steal somebody else's bag, which apparently Sam Brinton did. It'll be interesting to see what the White House has to say. It'll be interesting to see whether or not Sam Brinton keeps their job at the Department of Energy. But in any case, a little update on that. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you want to vote in our Twitter poll, should a presidential appointee, this is Sam Brinton, charged with a crime, be forced to step down from the job? 
I have a feeling the White House will figure out a way to finesse this one. They don't want to fire Sam Brinton, even from a mid-level. Nobody's even going to notice unless Sam Britton steals a bag at an airport uh, uh, to take out the deputy assistant secretary in charge of nuclear waste. Not exactly one that's going to end up on the front page of the New York Times or the Washington Post. But should a presidential appointee charged with a crime be forced to step down? I'd say, yeah. I, I think we should have tough standards for the people who collect a public paycheck, whether that public paycheck is paid for by the U.S. taxpayer or by the taxpayers of your state or your city or your county. If you've got a position of what they love to call themselves public servants, if you're serving the public and you commit a crime, in this case stealing $2,400 worth of luggage at an airport, I think you should at least lose your job, and I think you should be charged with a crime. Fact is, when the police first contacted Brenton on the 9th of October, Brenton denied stealing anything and then called the cop back and said, well, I wasn't completely honest, but it was a mistake and blamed being tired for taking the wrong bag at the carousel. I don't know about you, but if you don't check any luggage and you walk off a plane and say, I better go get my luggage when you don't have any luggage, you probably don't have the mental capacity to do that kind of job. You can find the Twitter poll at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. Brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I believe in. I joined the group. You should, too. Just do this. Go to AMAC.us or call 888-262-2006. AMAC's better. Better for you and better for America. Hawaii is now seeing a very rare dual eruption of volcanoes. Hasn't happened in almost 40 years. Mauna Loa and Kilauea have spewed lava onto the Big Island on Tuesday. Twitter is beginning to reinstate about 62,000 previously banned accounts. Donald Trump's is one of them, although it sounds like Trump is not going to start tweeting again because he has Truth Social. Politico, they have a brand new poll that shows only 28% of voters want Joe Biden to run for re-election in 2024, and yet there's every sign that Joe Biden plans to run for re-election. And the World Health Organization, solving the big problems of health worldwide, has now renamed monkeypox to mpox because of complaints about racist and stigmatizing language. What a load of baloney. Hey, if you're buying brand name, brand name CBD, you're probably paying too much for it. Visit my friends at genericcbd.com. They sell the premium stuff for less. And today, you can even save more. Check out their BOGO, their buy one, get one free sale. It's going on right now. Buy anything at the genericcbd.com website and get the second one free. Keep one for yourself and give one to a friend. It's a perfect stocking stuffer and a great Christmas gift for that hard-to-buy person that we all have. Generic CBD products are fantastic. My favorite is their number one selling CBD muscle and joint cream. It's amazing. Melts into your knees, elbows, shoulders, back, and hands. You won't believe how fast it goes to work. And it's BOGO too. Buy one, get one free. Just go to genericcbd.com. G-E-N-E-R-I-C, genericcbd.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA, and these products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to take your phone calls and emails, and I'll get to those in just a moment. 
But uh, I want to remind you of something. About 16 million Americans served in uniform during World War II. And in round numbers, about 1% of them are still with us uh, today. And I thought we'd talk about that with Marine General Michael Neal, who's the author of a new book called Welcome Home, American Heroes. General Neal, thank you so much for uh, joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Boy, it's not many. 167,000 or so World War II veterans that are still alive today. Uh, and they're and they're going fast. I hate to say that, but that is that's the truth of it at this point. Yeah, it's it's really a, it's one of the factors of life, I guess we can all say, because they're starting to give Vietnam veterans uh, plane rides, these honor flights to Washington D.C. Even because there's so few World War II types. Would you mind saying a word or two to my audience about your service in uniform and how you rose to the rank of Brigadier General? Well, I, no, I don't. I mind it all. I uh, was in college, actually law school after college, at Berkeley, California. In about 19, I graduated in 66. So it was a, a different time then. The war was very unpopular. Our flag was being burned every time I turned around. It seemed on campus there were protests all over the place. This was a nationwide phenomenon, and I got really upset over certain things that happened. One of them was I went to a, a movie that uh, one night it was supposed to be about the VC and how well the they were. The people, the Viet Cong, yep. how well they were treating the people and why we should be backing them. It was offered by the Young Socialist Alliance. And I went to the movie, and it was awful. It was, uh, you know, just a, a big propaganda piece. But the, what really broke me up was that night I saw for the first time the true tenor of these people that were there. There was a scene where an American helicopter was shot down, and this young, blonde-haired crewman, I, I assume he was a crewman, I don't think he was a pilot, was climbing out, and this machine gun hit him. You could see the tracers flying, and he fell face-first down into the rice paddy, and this audience cheered and clapped. I was so upset, I went over the next day and enlisted in the Marine Corps. That was the uh, thing that uh, inspired you. Now, pro- Berkeley probably doesn't produce nearly as many military recruits these days as it did back then, <laughs> does it? <laughs> no, but uh, as a matter of fact, Marine recruiter in, in San Francisco told me I was the first officer's candidate he'd received from Berkeley since he'd been there, and he'd been there almost a year. That's how high the uh, sentiment was against the war. Make a long story short, I went through OCS after graduating from law school. That was a caveat that I had for the Marine Corps. I said, look, I want to be an infantry officer. I don't want to be a lawyer. And number two, I uh, do not want to uh, miss taking the bar exam. So I had to take the bar exam before I left for the Corps. Well... Uh, I'm glad you've written Welcome Home, American Heroes. It's kind of a rallying cry to say we've got to make sure that not just 
heroes from World War II, but heroes from every single conflict the United States has ever had are, are actually thanked for their service and welcomed back home as Vietnam veterans were not. Well, that's the reason for the title was, my title was for the book was simply going to be Welcome Home because that's what we never heard. And I was lucky. I went home to San Diego in San Diego, California. That's a pro-military town. And my father was in the Marine Corps, so I knew a bunch of people there, and I played basketball in San Diego State. So I was welcomed home. But so many of my Marines, every time I go to a reunion, I still hear the lament. Our country hated us. We were spit upon when we came home. We were called baby killers. And all this baloney that they poor guys had to go through it was awful. No doubt. And and you, I, just so people know, they should know, General uh, Neal, that uh, you're you're a guy who was out in the midst of all this. You were you were actually leading a unit when you uh, in, when you took the actions that you took that that uh, that led to your being awarded the Navy Cross. Would you mind describing that day for me? Well, let me just give you a little idea of what it was like over there to, to get to that day. I, uh, my Marines, when I first was introduced to my platoon by this gunnery sergeant, I didn't even know the names of any of them. And I could tell by the looks on their faces, they're going, oh, my God, here we got a new lieutenant. And they'd lost their other one. These guys were... These young Marines, 18 to 19 years old, some of them are probably under 18, too, but they were out on patrols and ambushes day in, day out. And I, I, I welcome that. I'm an outdoor type of guy, and I just jumped into that. And I was going on bushes with them all the time and ambushes, patrols with them. And I became one, an extra rifleman along with them, and I think they appreciated that. Well, what led to this night with the uh, Navy Cross recipient, and I like to describe this in the book as, as Smedley Butler's night. Not Smedley Butler, but Larry Smedley. Smedley Butler is another very famous Marine. Yes, yes but, he is. Uh, Larry Smedley was uh, a squad leader of mine that night that you're talking about who received the Medal of Honor, and he well deserved it. I had my, I got, I was sent out with my platoon to, as a blocking force, and I divided us up into three different ambush sites. And Larry Smedley's squad was the smallest squad I had. There was only seven Marines with him that night, so I didn't give him it. We only had two machine guns. I didn't give him one because I posted him in a place I didn't think the enemy would walk through. Well, they did. And about 1 o'clock in the morning, I get a call from Larry. Um, we're speaking very quietly, and we're also speaking in code. He yep. just tells me, he says, sir, I've had about over 100 of these bad guys walk by us. And uh, then I alerted the battalion. I had pre-called fires set up, and I told him to get the reaction force out. And then I turned back to Larry, and over the radio, I said, shoot him. And he did the, the sky lit up. I linked up with my other two squads, and we uh, went on to fight him that night. But poor Larry was killed later in the fighting. General Neal, I appreciate you uh, 
coming on the show. We're going to we're going to suggest that people that they get a copy of Welcome Home American Heroes. Its author is retired Brigadier General Michael Neal, the author of Welcome Home American Heroes. General Neal, thank you very much. I appreciate your service to America. You've got the Lars Larson show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Tuesday night. And I want to start with this question. Why in the world would the Centers for Disease Control, when they're trying to find out about the post-vaccine effects of the COVID-19 vaccines, if you still like calling it a vaccine, I'm not crazy about it, but I can't come up with a better term of art that's not really complicated. Like the shot that doesn't stop you from getting COVID, doesn't stop you from transmitting COVID, doesn't stop you from going to the hospital with COVID, and doesn't stop you from, in some cases, dying of COVID. Except that's really, really long and complicated. But that pretty well sums up the mRNA vaccine, so-called, that doesn't stop you from getting it. But why would the CDC decide if we want to find out what this vaccine does, in addition to not thoroughly protecting you against COVID, do we want to find out whether or not it causes myocarditis? Why would the CDC leave that off of its post-vaccine surveys? Let me get into the details of that in just a moment in a breaking news story from our friends John Solomon and JustTheNews.com. But first, welcome to the program. We call it the best conversation in talk journalism, and you're welcome to take part. Even if you're a naysayer, you'll go right to the head of the line at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com, and I'll tell you about our Twitter poll in just a moment. But let me tell you about this developing news that JustTheNews.com, our friend John Solomon, has broken. The earliest demographics to get COVID-19 so-called vaccines, such as healthcare workers, reported a surprisingly high rate of serious complications from them, according to data that the CDC had to turn over to Just the News under a court order. Among the 10 million-plus users, so these are the first people getting the shots. Remember, in the early days, when the so-called COVID-19 vaccine had first become available. Joe Biden got his first shot in uh, December of 2020. So right at the end of the first pandemic year, he got his second shot in January. Then he took the oath of office, and then he declared that there was no vaccine when he arrived at the White House, which was hogwash like most of what Joe Biden has to say. But here's what happened. Among the 10 million-plus users of the CDC's active monitoring smartphone app through July. Eight and a half million of them signed up between December 2020. Like I said, that's the first month the vaccine so-called was out there in April of 21 before all uh, eligible adults became eligible for the COVID so-called vaccine. Eight percent of them said they required medical care after receiving their vaccine. In other words, they didn't just have a fever or some body aches. They actually had to go in and get medical care. It took a year and a half to get the files that show the CDC had to download all this information. What they came up with was this, chest pain and other cardiac symptoms that would indicate myocarditis and pericarditis, now known to be more common post-vaccination in people under the age of 40, are completely missing from the CDC checkboxes without which inputting the data is harder to standardize. V-Safe users, this is this app that you could put on a smartphone, would have to write in cardiac symptoms on the survey. 
The CDC didn't want to know about cardiac problems that came about because of the vaccine. And yet that's one of the biggest concerns today. When people ask me, why are so many young, seemingly healthy athletes just dropping dead? Why are we hearing about people who have myocarditis in some cases, myocarditis that they recover from? In other cases, sadly, they don't recover at all. And why is it the CDC didn't want to gather that information at all? It doesn't make any sense unless you know that what the CDC was trying to do was to hide the problems. And I think there's more investigation to be done here. I'm glad for the breaking news from justthenews.com. Welcome to the program. Let me tell you what's coming up this hour, and then I'll get to the Twitter poll in just a moment and your phone calls at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. In March of 2020, the first year, the first couple of months that the pandemic virus arrived on America's shores, Experts, including Dr. Fauci, said masking was ineffective and unnecessary. So what evidence changed that led to the mask mandates just a few weeks later? And even today, there are people saying, well, we should go back to mask mandates in various states and locales around America. While many Americans can barely afford food and fuel, Joe Biden's DOJ is now investigating, get this, this is the big issue, Ticketmaster. And why? Because apparently that brilliant member of Congress, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, otherwise known as AOC, she couldn't score some Taylor Swift concert tickets. So Joe Biden's DOJ jumps right into that one. We'll talk about that as well. The FDA has approved the world's most expensive drug. It comes at about three and a half million dollars a dose. Is it worth it? And what do we do for things that are known as orphan illnesses or orphan diseases? where you have a disease, you've identified it, you know what causes it, you know what you can do to address it, but there are so few people that are going to get the medicine, you've got to recover the money somehow. This stuff comes in at $3.5 million a dose. Is it worth it? We'll talk about that as well. Now, I want you to take just a moment to cast a vote in our Twitter poll. We put up a brand new question each and every day from the news of the day, and then you can answer it any way you like. Should a presidential appointee who has now been charged with a crime, be forced to step down. Sam Brinton, the non-binary drag queen uh, who was named to a post as a senior energy department official, stole somebody's luggage worth about $2,400 at the Minneapolis airport, now admits that it was stolen. Uh, this is Sam Brinton, uh, a non-binary, so you can't call he or she, I guess the term of art is they, walked off an airplane, for a flight in which they had not checked any luggage and walked right down to baggage claim and happened to pick out a particularly expensive piece of luggage, took the luggage home, dumped the clothes out, and continued to use the luggage until finally confronted by police in September and October of this year, at first denying stealing anything when the police called to talk about it and then saying, well, maybe I haven't been completely honest about that. It looks like on camera, on video, and now by admission, this senior energy department official for Joe Biden, a presidential appointee, is now going to be charged with a crime. Or not, because I have a feeling the Biden administration will pull out all the stops to try to protect this person from exposing the Biden administration for hiring people, not based on their skills and based on their abilities, but what kind of box they check. 
Consider that. Should a presidential appointee charged with a crime be forced to step down? The Twitter poll can be found at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. Brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I believe in. I joined the group, and I think you should too. Call 888-262-2006. AMAC is better, better for you and better for America. Coming up. Prescription costs can vary from a few pennies to thousands of dollars, and most people are more than willing to pay if it changes their life. But what do you do when your prescription costs more than $3 million a dose? We'll talk about that with our medical go-to guy coming up next. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get your calls. And Dr. Henry Miller, who is our medical go-to guy, physician, molecular biologist, and a senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute, you can read what the doc writes at henrymillermd.org. Now, Doc, I like to tell my audience if I think I have a dog in the fight, that is a bias, uh, I'm a 63-year-old guy. I'm, I take a pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical every day called metformin. It costs about a nickel a pill, although they sell it for a lot more than that, but not a lot, not, not a huge amount more than that. I also have a little bit of a bias because when I was in high school, one of my best buddies named Wayne, who's no longer with us, was a hemophiliac. And I understood that he was he was up against the uh, the odds were against him uh, because hemophilia is a very difficult uh, disorder to have. It's a genetic based bleeding disorder. And now there's a brand new treatment for hemophilia, except that it sounds like it may be out of the reach of just about everybody. Welcome back to the show, by the way. Good to be with you. Thanks, Lars. You know, this is a, a very interesting conundrum. Um, a hemophilia is a defect in clotting factors, and um, this particular drug treats hemophilia B, which is a, a genetic defect in a factor nine, so-called. And these clotting factors are involved in the cascade that, in, that causes your blood to clot if you have a cut or uh, or uh, you you have a bleed into your head or or a joint, your blood clots and you don't have significant damage. And hemophilia, um, you have uncontrolled bleeding or copious bleeding, and it often causes damage. It can cause strokes. Uh, commonly causes bleeding into joints with damage that causes arthritis uh, and uh, down the road. Now. What this uh, drug does, this is um, gene therapy, so-called. Uh, it's a virus that's been modified uh, to contain an insert of the gene for factor nine. And when it's infused intravenously, um, it migrates to the liver. It, it stays in the liver. It does not transfer its DNA to the host, but it, it stays within the liver cells and it produces large amounts of factor nine. Um, the the people who constructed this uh, put in a factor nine gene that's more active than the the usual factor nine genes that we we all have, and so it produces enough factor nine to re, re, to reverse the effects of hemophilia and to restore more or less normal clotting. Um, now, when, now, hold on, Doc, Doc, so I understand this. You infuse it one time, and it makes a permanent change that allows you to effectively not be a hemophiliac any, any longer? Exactly. It's really quite miraculous when you think about it, because the alternative 
is that you have intravenous infusions of purified factor nine several times a week for your entire life. That's the alternative to this gene therapy. And and the result was, I remember that, uh, that I would talk to my friend Wayne about the uh, about the factor that he had to. I guess I I always thought it was taking it. I mean, he wasn't taking it, you know, orally, uh, but he was having it put in. But it would help correct it for a time. But there was no permanent fix. So this, at three and a half million dollars per treatment, actually fixes the uh, fixes the ailment altogether. It it does exactly. Now. As uh, as you and I discussed before the, the program, uh, this is a case that now that's a huge expenditure, obviously a, a yeah. monumental ex- expenditure. But it, it's reminiscent of the old Fram oil filter ad, which went, "You can pay me now, or you can pay me later." And the uh, the expense of the purified factor nine infusions, which your friend friend Wayne got is in the hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, uh, up to up to a million or even more, depending on the individual patient. So the the ultimate this is actually cost saving in the end if if a person uh, lives for say ten or fifteen or twenty or more years. So that means that and and, and I would assume that for the people who are say it might be able to work, might be able to have a productive life this kind of treatment early on in life could actually allow them to have a productive life and it would not end up, uh, it, w- it would end up being cost, uh, at least cost neutral, right? Exactly. And, and also, it's just a better treatment than the constant recurrent infusions of factor nine. Fewer bleeds, less severe bleeds. So these people have a higher quality of life. So, how do you end up paying for this? Because this is, isn't this a problem with every one of the, I don't know if this qualifies as an orphan disease or an orphan illness. I've heard that term used before to describe things that we know how to treat, but there's very few people. In this case, it's one person in 40,000 has the disease. So it's not as though the drug company or the pharma company can say we can spread this cost out among hundreds of thousands or millions of recipients. You've got to get you know some kind of payback uh, from a very small group of people, or I assume from either government insurance like Medicaid that might be paying for the factor rather than paying for this. You could almost make it revenue neutral in some cases, or a cost neutral, couldn't you? Well, it could be more cost effective, not even neutral, more cost effective because of the significant expense of the recurrent injections of factor nine in the absence of the gene therapy. Now, I don't know. This is really a job for health economists to sort out. Uh, but I don't know how you, you uh, come up with the money up front that kind of money up front. Uh, but, you know, it, it has to be doable because the, the high cost of the factor nine injections, infusions, is not something that individuals can bear either. No, aren't, so, would, would I be right in guessing that unless you happen to have been born into a fabulously wealthy family, which is not going to just and have this disease as, or this illness as well, uh, that is probably being paid for by Medicaid right now, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, that would be my guess, too. You know, I'm, not, I'm no economist, <laughs> but, it, but it must be paid for by government programs one way or the other. And so 
uh, again, it, it, it should be uh, arrangeable to, uh, to do it in, in an upfront, big, big uh, bolus of money uh, of fashion. But this is one of those situations where I, I've tried to explain to people on this show before when they say, well, the drug companies charge too much. And I said, well, if you've got two or three billion dollars that's been invested in a drug, you've got to recover the cost somewhere. And they say, no, the drug companies are rich. I said, no, they make about a 15 percent return in a very risky business where things can go south in a hurry. If you haven't noticed, they they have done that to a lot of the pharmaceutical companies. You can have a winner that makes you billions and you can have a bunch of losers that cost you billions and you hope you make 15 percent at the end of the day. And if you don't make money, then it then I guess it just falls to the government to be the innovator. And frankly, you've worked in government before. I don't trust government to be an innovator. Oh, you're right. That is, they are not the ones to do this. By the way, one additional point. There's yep. an interesting nonprofit organization called the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, ICER, I-C-E-R. And they uh, analyzed the, uh, the value of new drugs. And they found that a multi-million dollar price tag for this drug is is uh, justified because of its effectiveness and what it would replace, but they uh, judged the cost effectiveness to be around 2.9 million rather than the 3.5 million that the company. But it's close charged. to a wash, then, right? It's close to it's close to uh, to being the same. Yeah. Well, it, it it does sound like then that government's going to have to get involved. Uh, but if but if the trade off is to tell a twenty year old hemophiliac instead of giving you two hundred thousand dollars worth of factor every year for the next uh, forty years, uh, we're going to give you one dose of this. We're going to get you healthy, and then you can go on with your life and uh, be a productive member of society. You can find what Dr. Miller writes at henrymillermd.org. Doctor, it's a pleasure. Thanks very much. Coming up. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has sick the Department of Justice on Ticketmaster. I'll tell you the story and the whys and the wherefores coming up next. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails, naysayer or not, to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll. You'll always find the question two places, at Lars Larson Show. And at LarsLarson.com, our website that doesn't suffer from any of the problems that uh, either Twitter or anybody else had in the past. Um, and, of course, you can always email. You know, if you're a naysayer, we'll put you up first. I want to tell you about something rather strange that's happening. And it has to do with uh, one of the most juvenile members of the United States Congress. And believe me, that's saying something because there are plenty of people in the U.S. Congress that I don't take very seriously based on their words and their actions. But Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been, well, two things. Number one, kind of a joke as a member of Congress. She was the accidental member of Congress who happened to run in a district where you couldn't get, you couldn't lose the election if you ran as a Democrat. And she ended up as the Democrat in a highly Democrat district. She has stayed in Congress despite the fact that on almost a daily basis for the first couple of years until she learned to keep her mouth shut to a larger degree, she would say crazy things. And I mean, I, you know, for somebody in talk radio like me, fine. Uh, and she would say things like the reason that the unemployment rate is low is that people are working two jobs. 
anybody who can do uh, about second grade math could figure out why that's not true. But lately, she tried to get some tickets to a show with Taylor Swift. Now, there were lots of people who had trouble getting tickets to Taylor Taylor Swift. I'm not one of them. Uh, That's not my kind of show. But okay, she's trying to get tickets to Taylor Swift, and there was chaos. In fact, they shut down the whole ticket event uh, because apparently Ticketmaster could not handle it. Well, then she weighed in over the weekend. And what happened was she got very upset that people were not able to buy the tickets. Thousands of fans ended up frustrated. Scalpers were jacking up their prices into the tens of thousands of dollars. And actually, scalpers, for somebody who believes in pure market economics, actually serve a purpose. I wouldn't be crazy about paying over the face value of a ticket to buy a ticket, but that's what it is. That's what scalpers do, is they buy things at one price, they sell for a higher price. It's been a joke. But even for the largest venues, as described by the Daily Wire, uh, the service fee, the facility charge, the order processing fee, and the convenience fee, they call it, uh, it, it can end up making a $35 ticket cost as much as $300. Well, AOC called the company a monopoly. Ticketmaster and Live Nation merged about 12 years ago. And they say things have not gone well since. Ticketmaster controls the tickets. Live Nation often owns the venue. That means they are in 100% control. The Taylor Swift mess has now prompted the Department of Justice perhaps with the urging of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to announce that it is opening a probe into the monopoly. Now, do you think this is the biggest problem that we have in America, whether or not people can get tickets for concerts and events? Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut, Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota, and Edward Markey of Massachusetts, who never miss an opportunity to seize onto some kind of controversy that will generate good publicity, they actually wrote a letter to the Attorney General saying it's not enough just to investigate. They said an investigation alone does nothing for the stakeholders already harmed by Live Nation's market dominance and seeming ongoing anti-competitive behavior. They say the company, which controls about 60% of the live event marketplace, including many of the biggest venues, has continued to abuse its dominant market position. We urge the department to consider unwinding the Ticketmaster Live Nation merger and then breaking up the company. Do you know what I think will happen if they do that? I think what will happen is they may break up the company, The smaller companies will have to compete with the bigger companies that are left behind, and eventually the bigger companies will be dominant once again. I think it's a very select marketplace. Now, could those companies operate perhaps with greater transparency to its customers? I've often thought uh, that there ought to be a way for people who are genuinely fans to go and buy a ticket and go and see an event or buy two or three tickets, take your family to an event. And the cost of most events these days is actually absolutely mind-blowing. In fact, my wife and I actually went online because we said maybe we should take my granddaughter to go see The Nutcracker, a live performance of The Nutcracker. Uh, we'd both seen it uh, in pe- years gone by, and it's, it's a beautiful show around the time of the holidays. The cheapest tickets in my neck of the woods for four people to go and see that show would come in just short of $1,000. 
Those are the cheap tickets. Those are the cheap seats way up in the nosebleeds. If you want to get some of the so-called good tickets that are down a little closer to front, but not even front row, you could literally spend as much as four or $5,000 to buy tickets for four people to go and see that show. And you think, no, this is the Nutcracker. It's a, it's a show. It's been around for hundreds of years. Um, we'd like to go take family members to the show. We don't have four or $5,000 to spend on something like that. And even if you did have the four or $5,000, you might feel a bit foolish doing it. But is there a way to create a system in which a private company can own the venue, another private company that it has merged with can sell the tickets? It sounds like a worthwhile marriage of two companies that are in allied industries, selling the tickets and putting on the show or providing the venue for the show. If you break it up into a whole bunch of little players, it doesn't mean the scalpers are going to go away. They'll simply find other ways to access those tickets, to hold on to them, and then wait for the marketplace to jack the price up and sell them to customers. And every time the government touches something like this, they usually, number one, make it worse. They don't make it better. That's number one. Number two, when the government gets involved, they tend to write one-size-fits-all rules. If you want some examples of that, take a look at what happened during the pandemic, where one-size-fits-all rules didn't fit anybody at all. And will it solve the problem? No. The government doesn't know how to run anything. And I've frequently had people say, well, you're too critical of the government. I said, the government is there to serve certain purposes. And if you want to know what the purposes are, they're enumerated in the U.S. Constitution. It says exactly what the federal government is supposed to be doing and, by definition, all the things it's not supposed to be involved in. Uh, but the federal government loves to expand its reach. I mean, after all, the Congress, they'll reach into professional sports. They'll reach into movies. They'll reach into anywhere they can get their grubby little hands to try to get something that will draw good public attention to them. And if you ask them, so what does the government run well? Does it run the U.S. postal system well? Which is still, while it's an independent agency, it is still an agency of government. And the answer is no, it doesn't run well at all. Are there private companies that do virtually the same thing the Postal Service does and do it much better? Yes, there are. And if you say, but FedEx and UPS and the other companies, they don't deliver the mail every day. You should understand the U.S. Postal Service actually has a legal monopoly on the mail. Nobody else is allowed to compete with them on daily mail. All that FedEx and UPS and the rest are allowed to do is package delivery and urgent deliveries. None of those companies is allowed legally to compete with the U.S. Postal Service. What about Amtrak? Does Amtrak run as a government agency and run well? And the answer is no. There are very few things that the U.S. government or even local governments do well. So if you say, let's put them in charge of managing live shows and the sales of tickets for those live shows while they'll do a fantastic job, I'll tell you what, I'll believe it when I see it, and I've never seen it yet. Coming up, we got to talk about Anthony Fauci, the ba ba past two years, telling the country we should all wear masks to save lives and the lives of those around us. We'll examine that in just a moment on the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to take your phone calls and emails. I want to talk about Dr. Anthony Fauci, who, yes, is on his way out of federal government employment. That doesn't mean he's still not going to be a threat to your health or safety, because I have a feeling that his... Uh, 
his job after this job, even though he's collecting a massive amount of pension, he's made himself a multimillionaire, especially over the last two years. Uh, I have a feeling he's still going to keep his uh, his hand in what's going on. So I've invited John Zadrosnian, who's deputy director of investigations for America First Legal, to talk about when what Anthony Fauci knew during the pandemic and when did he stop knowing it. Uh, John, welcome back. Hey, Lars, thanks for having me on. So we've got Dr. Anthony Fauci, it seems clear from some emails that we now know about, knew all along that masks on faces were not going to make any difference whatsoever to the spread uh, or the transmission of uh, COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2, right? Lars, I can't, I can't recall how many times Dr. Fauci has lied about the effectiveness of masks. Um, you know, I, seriously, I, I remember um, in the very beginning, um, he was actually saying things that were very contrary to what he wound up saying. Um, he was saying masks don't work. He was saying the six-foot spacing doesn't work. He was basically saying lockdowns are dumb. Uh, and he magically transformed over the course of a couple months to going from that to everything has to be locked down and people need to wear those masks at all times. And I, I wonder what the source of it was. I, I think it was a combination of things. There was probably some financial incentive. I have a funny feeling that the prospect of making a ton of money by investing in pharmaceutical companies and having them do some payouts to him, possibly and other people, might have changed his tone. But I also think that uh, it reminds me of that quote by David Horowitz, which is, inside every liberal there's a dictator screaming to get out. And I think the temptation of having control of everything was just too much for him and the left. And, um, you know, unfortunately, he caused a lot of damage to President Trump's administration, and President Trump didn't stop that, uh, that sabotage in time. No, he didn't. Because, but but then again, uh, every president has a full plate, even when you're as sharp as Trump is. But I, I guess what, what gets at me is that Fauci seemed to be saying to me whatever was popular to say at the time. So early on, he was saying, no, masks don't work. And then later admitting, well, I told you that because we were trying to preserve the supply. Maybe that was the case or not. And then he changes his tune, realizing, well, we've got to do something. So we'll just tell everybody to wear masks. And we're still living with the legacy today, aren't we? I, we absolutely are, Lars. I mean, I've, I've got three kids who thankfully were slightly older uh, than the youngest kids in the country who were in school. And they had already learned the basics of language. They were doing okay. I, there were some issues at, at some point because of just the isolation of being at home and screen learning for kids who don't have the ability to focus. That's really hard. There are parents whose kids are delayed. They don't have the same speech skills other children have at the same age who didn't have the COVID lockdowns and the mask mandates. Um, there are children who are suffering academically. It was one of the worst real-life impacting decisions that's probably ever been made by our federal government. Um, and, you know, Dr. Fauci just, he, he did what politicians do. Unfortunately, he spent enough time in Washington. He used to be a real doctor. He then spent enough time in Washington where he effectively became a politician. And I guess he learned the ultimate political lesson, which is if you say, if you address every side of an issue, no one can really ever accuse you of lying because you've said everything. So you're really not ever completely wrong because you've said every possible outcome. Um, you know, and it's just a shame because people did suffer for it. And um, you now have, this is what I worry about. You st you're starting, like you said, it's still with us. There are people who are dangling the possibility of more lockdowns, which is absurd because we're well past any sort of window of not knowing what this is and not knowing how to handle it. So the, the, the dangerous effects of Dr. Fauci will live on past his federal tenure. See, and that's what I was referring to because you still have people in public policy positions around America, many of them at the local level, not at the federal level, because people need to understand the federal government really doesn't have that much to say about how, you know, local lockdowns happen. But your local 
school board does, your State Department of Health does, and some of those people were apparently persuaded by the lockdowns, persuaded by the mask mandates, and they said, well, if things get tough with either COVID or RSV or whatever new disease they come up with next week, we may have to go back to masks. We may have to go back to lockdowns. So that's what I meant is the legacy, that it's not just the kids who are delayed, but it's also public policymakers who say, yeah, well, masks, uh, that was a thing, and now we're going to bring it back. And I think they're, they're, uh, they're, they're inclined to do that right now. Lars, I think you're right. You know, and this, you raised a great point, which is that um, a lot of the states and localities, some run by Republicans, some run by Marxist Democrats, uh, they, they pretended they had to do these things. But at the end of the day, they weren't being honest with the people in their jurisdictions because those were recommendations. Nothing the CDC or the FDA does can really be binding on the states. But when the CD says, CDC tells everyone you should wear a mask and you know hop on one foot on Tuesdays between noon and one, the states are free to disregard that. The school districts are free to disregard that. In fact, they should. And the states, I'll point out, that have had the most success were the ones that essentially ignore those recommendations and told the CDC and other federal agencies to pound sand, like Florida. Yep. So um, at least the good news is because despite the, all of the bad things that happened over the last couple, couple of years because of Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks and all those other saboteurs, we do have the silver lining of the states that show the path to success is not following what the federal government says. And I think that's a lesson that the states, hopefully more of which will be run by Republicans in the future, are going to be run in a different way. They'll look at federal recommendations, they'll say no thank you, and they'll forge their own path. Well, now that Dr. Fauci has had to go through this seven-hour deposition under oath uh, in this lawsuit brought by the Missouri Attorney General and I think Louisiana as well, is there ever going to be a consequence for a supposedly a medical professional deliberately peddling false information? Because, the you know, you, John, you and I both know the federal government will come down on a private company like a ton of bricks if they lie to their customers. If they say this pill will cure your ills uh, and, and they'll go. The FTC will go after him. FDA will go after him. CDC will go well, more FDA and, C, and FTC. But here's Fauci at the top of the pile, and apparently he can lie with impunity, and there's never a consequence for it? Well, Lars, I think we do need to get to a place where we start imposing consequences for federal employees, um, one of which is the reality is if there's ever, you know, if we're ever allowed to have a fair election again and there's a Republican <laughs> president, um, the attorney general should investigate whether there were any potential criminal charges against Dr. Fauci or any of these federal employees who caused issues. I mean, you know, there's the potential, the serious potential for some self-dealing here. That 180 reversal on viewpoint might have had a little something to do with money landing in his pocket. Who gave him that money? Where is it? How much was it? Um, other people have been thrown in prison for that. Uh, and if there are criminal charges that, that are there for the, him and other people, they should absolutely be pursued. One other thing, too, Lars, uh, you know, we usually talk about impeachment in the context of active-duty federal employees, right. usually the president. Uh, but the reality is you can impeach someone like a Dr. Fauci after they've left office. I think he thinks by retiring, he's protecting himself. Um, yeah, there might be other priorities, but you could impeach a guy like Dr. Fauci, and guess what? He loses his pension. And if you want to send a shot across the bow against every corrupt federal employee that thinks that they can destroy your life with impunity, threaten their pension. Because ultimately, a lot of, you know, I've talked to some federal employees when I was there in the administration, after I've left, before. They all say, I'm just trying to hang on to my pension. I'm doing whatever I'm told. If you make it clear that their pension will not necessarily be there if they break the law, you might see a different trend among federal employees. So, uh, you know what, I think John? It's a I think. 
I think it's a great idea. John Zadrozny from America First Legal. John, thank you. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your phone calls and emails in just a moment. You know, it's been a while since we've talked to Natalie Winters. Uh, She's a journalist, but she has broken a rather major story that I suspect you are not going to hear about in mainstream media. Uh, The banking platform that was set up specifically for illegal aliens, and apparently Joe Biden and his son were both involved because of that, uh, E-Plata, which is a digital banking platform partnered with the Mexican government to enable migrants, as they call them, illegal aliens, to send and receive remittances. They apparently have deep financial and personal ties to Hunter Biden. The fintech startup describes itself as a multi-balance, multi-currency, digital wallet, and payment ecosystem. It was founded by one of Hunter Biden's longtime business partners, Jeff Cooper. But Hunter Biden, now there are brand new documents out, uh, unearthed by Natalie Winters, uh, that reveal the son, the president's son, had an eight and a quarter percent stake in ePlata through his company, that's Owasco LLC, which apparently Joe Biden is connected to as well. Emails obtained from Hunter Biden's hard drive prove that the president's son was profiting off ePlata, which, if you connect the dots, having an open border uh, put there by Joe Biden after he became president less than two years ago has meant almost five million people have managed to cross the border illegally into the United States. And having a platform for transferring money to them, that could come in awfully handy. Also, in the criminal justice area, Consider this, the report from the Daily Mail that in California, thousands of convicted pedophiles. So I'm not talking about cases that you've never heard of. I'm talking about cases where people are formally accused in the judicial system of being involved in rape, sodomy, and sexual abuse of kids under the age of 14. Thousands of people. Uh, Daily Mail did an analysis of California sex offenders database that shows that thousands of child molesters are being let out of prison after just a few months in custody. Months in custody. The Daily Mail's investigation shows 7,000 sex offenders were convicted of lewd and lascivious acts with a child under 14. They were released the same year that they were convicted. Others who had committed some of the worst child sex crimes, including sodomy and rape of children, also served similarly short sentences. Current and former Los Angeles sex crime crime prosecutors say the figures are terrifying and shameful. They are turning these pedophiles loose after almost no punishment at all. And you can imagine when the word gets around about that, that there's really no consequence for committing those crimes against children, you get more of it. To your calls now, let's start with Kathy. Hey, Kathy, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Well, this marriage thing, I I think they're confused because they're always sticking someone black, which I am, in the, you know, first it was just the homosexuals. They compared blacks to homosexuals. Now they're having interracial marriage, again, which includes blacks. But when they do interracial marriage, I don't know if they figured out that's between a man and a woman. Yes. You know, as far as... Well, are you saying that, that advocates, advocates for gay marriage are saying why this is just like the so-called anti-missignation laws from decades and decades ago, where, the, where laws in various states in America said uh, bl- uh, people of color could not marry white people in this country. Those laws were dealt with a long time ago. 
But, you know, the gay community has said we want to latch our cause onto the civil rights cause of black Americans who said we want the freedom to marry anyone we want. But that was a marriage between a man and a woman, uh, not a gay yes, marriage. And it's still, yes, it's still between a man and a woman. And that seems to get lost in the translation. It does. And so that it just irritates me to no end that any time somebody who is on the fringe, when they know that as a rule, the black community believes in marriage and, you know, they degraded it by, you know, um, kicking the men out of the house with, with DSHS, you know, we don't have to do anything. We just get the men out of the house and giving the, the idea that men aren't important in the family and then we have all this mess, and since we started stirring the pot there, the pot there then we'll stir the pot somewhere else. And so it's just very you know, irritating to me. That it's irritating, I think, to all of us who believe in what marriage is. And when I heard Senator Ron Wyden, who's pushing this so-called marriage equality bill, which they, I guess, are planning to vote on as soon as they possibly can during the lame duck session of Congress, uh, they they want to get it past the Senate, get it past the House. And why? Because they're afraid that the U.S. Supreme Court will say about the gay marriage decision, the Obergefell decision, yeah, you're right, there's no marriage mention of marriage in the U.S. Constitution, so there's no right to marriage in the in, of any kind. And But here's the weirdest argument that Wyden makes, and I hear it all the time, why anybody should be able to marry anybody based on love. Well, Kathy... Uh, marriage has been an exclusive in human history. I mean, not just in U.S. history, in human history has been an exclusively heterosexual thing for a, most of the last 6,000 years. And you can document that pretty easily. And you say, well, no, anybody should be able to get married to anybody. You say, hold on. How about cousins? Well, not cousins. Well, how about a 12 year old girl? No, no, no. There's got to be an age limit. Uh, well, can you marry more than one person? Can, can a wife have more than one husband? Can a husband have more than one wife? There are cultures on earth that have that. And you say, no. So the very same people who will tell you why anybody should be able to marry anybody, and it's all based on love, will in the next breath say, but there have to be age limits. There have to be limits. You have to get a, an official state license to get married, something that's always irritated me. Um, you know, I'm married to Tina. We have a license. Why? Because this, the government got involved in marriage about 150 years ago. That was the first time that the government was involved in marriage. And you know what's happened? The institution has been torn apart for the last 150 years because the government got involved. And I argued 25 years ago, I kept saying to conservatives, will you just please tell the government to get out of marriage altogether? And they said, no, the government has to be involved. I said, well, the government wasn't involved in marriage for the first 6,000 years. And they say, yeah, yeah, but you have to have the government. And I say, why? And they'll say, well, to test for disease. Now that went away decades ago. They don't do that anymore. I don't know of a single state they used to test people for venereal disease and things like that. They don't do that anymore. You say, well, why does the government have to be involved? Well, be because of children. I said, do you don't know single people in this country who have kids where there's a, ch a parenting plan uh, where the state has gotten involved in deciding who's going to be the parent most of the time and who's not? That, that happens whether you're married or not. If you ask somebody for a good reason why the government should be involved in marriage, most people can't come up with a single good reason. 
to have the government involved in marriage. And I can come up with a good reason to have them not involved in marriage. Ever since the government got involved, they started tearing marriage apart and using it as a political football. I wish the government would get out of marriage altogether. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. I'll be glad to get back to your phone calls and emails shortly at 866-HEY-LARS. But we've got to talk about the open warfare that is going on right now in America over a subject that you might have thought, well, I have the protection of the First Amendment. I've got free speech in this country. The government can't get in the way, except that the government has done exactly that. In fact, right now there's a lawsuit going on involving a former Joe Biden press secretary by the name of Jen Psaki. We think of her as circle back Jen because she never had any real answers for most of the questions that were asked of her. She's now making a much bigger paycheck in the private sector. She doesn't want to have to testify because there was a time when on behalf of Joe Biden, she bragged that the White House was working with the social media giants to try to control the flow of information and limit what people had to say and limit what people could actually read. So I think there's a real reason to be concerned about both free speech and the access to information that we have in a society, a republic, if you can keep it, as Franklin once said, um, that you have to have an informed public or the republic is simply not capable of sustaining itself. Now, on that note, let me welcome Tristan Justice, who's Western correspondent for The Federalist. Tristan, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you for having me. So Apple, one of the biggest companies in the world, has now stopped advertising on Twitter. Do we know why they did that? Well, we don't. I don't think we'll know for a little bit of time. But they've also, according to Elon Musk, Twitter's new uh, chief executive, uh, Apple is now threatening to, threatening to suspend Twitter from all of its, its iOS platforms, so banning it from the Apple App Store. And it really is the parlor playbook when Apple really used weaponized its backhand its backdoor uh, pathways of censorship and, and threatened and, and, and threw Parler off the Apple App Store's app Parler, which was a free speech alternative to, to Twitter a year and a half ago, which yep. feels like centuries ago, when Parler refused to, to capitulate and implement the different kind of uh, censorship um, mechanisms that Apple had, demand, had been demanding. And, of course, I guess the tie-through that I would take is that these bigger social media giants depend very much on the federal government for the kind of protection that they get. Uh, they also depend on the federal government say so, you know, for a big part of what they do as a business. So you can kind of expect that in, in many cases they may do the federal government's bidding. So they censor the, the companies like Parler and Twitter or try to push Twitter and Parler to go one direction or another. And you, you could say, well, if they were working and if they are still working with the federal government, this is just the government using uh, private actors to carry out the kind of censorship that the government is forbidden to do uh, if it follows the First Amendment. Well, we've also seen the government really uh, uh, push different items of censorship to protect a certain agenda. Uh, we saw that come through. I think the Hunter Biden laptop is becoming kind of the central focus, the central case study in all of this, where the FBI placed pressure on Facebook, um, which willingly uh, did the FBI's bidding and suppressed the Hunter Biden laptop story for an entire week. And, and you had Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Meta, which is the parent company Facebook, go on the Joe Rogan podcast and really admit this year that, yeah, Facebook willingly did the FBI's bidding and suppressed the Hunter Biden laptop story um, weeks before a presidential election, contrary to any evidence that what was coming out of the Hunter Biden laptop was, in fact, a Russian disinformation operation. And, of course, I, I don't think Zuckerberg went on voluntarily 
when and gave that testimony, I, I, you know, I, I just I just on 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 good whim that came after two two major groundbreaking whistleblower reports from both Senator Chuck Grassley and Ron Johns' offices outlining FBI malfeasance related to that story. And so uh, we, we've seen how government can collude with big tech actors and even pressure big tech actors to, uh, like you said, do their own bidding. Well, and does that mean that when Apple, which has a lot of horsepower, they've got a huge market capitalization, they've got a huge bank account, they're, they're not in debt at all, or not unless they choose to be, they've got lots and lots of cash. When they say, we're just going to stop advertising unless Twitter comes into line, uh, then, then they're still doing this kind of activity. And it, it poses the risk that where the new owner of Twitter, Musk, uh, says, I want to have free speech on there, and he starts allowing uh, you know, actors, uh, you know, meaning people who who want to say things that they were forbidden to say on Twitter, says, I'm going to let them back in and let free speech, you know, that free speech is essential. And I think it is essential that when Apple says, well, we can't let that happen. And they take action against Twitter, knowing that Twitter is advertiser supported, like an awful lot of social media is advertiser supported. Apple may have the horsepower to go out and, and once again, do the government's bidding, tell tell another player that they don't own but that they can influence through their advertising practices, you're going to have to toe the line, uh, the same line that we've been towing for the U.S. government. Should, should citizens be worried about that, Tristan? Well, the backlash against Elon Musk trying to make, you know, create an actual open forum where free dialogue can happen has actually been just as telling as the censorship has been over the last four or five years. Um, you, you have these massive tech giants now recoiling at the idea that Twitter can become a space for uh, – this this free marketplace of ideas as 21st century digital public square, and so you know it raises a whole host of questions as as uh, about how these other companies have conducted themselves when they don't have such an open hand in censorship. And Apple doesn't have you know you know Apple Apple is not as big a search engine as Google. Apple isn't as big a, a platform hoster as as Twitter and Facebook where people will post and engage in these discussions. Apple, uh, but what Apple can do is they can manipulate. Who gets access to their app store and who doesn't, and who gets access to be on their iOS devices and who doesn't, and that is still a massive amount of power. So Apple has a lot of uh, Apple still has this kind of uh, backdoor avenue of censorship, and so I think Elon Musk was was right on Monday to raise questions about how Apple has can conducted itself and still been an engine of left wing censorship since that's how Silicon Valley tech giants have all continued to operate over the last half decade. Well, Tristan, neither one of us is an attorney, but is it legal for a big private company to use its horsepower that way, its cash and everything else, to try to influence? Because it would strike me that there, there are lots of questions legitimately about antitrust activities, where one company might like another company to act in a different way. Uh, you know, is, is it legal under the antitrust laws for Apple to go out and do this to Twitter? Well, the truth is, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I know it's definitely something that Congress is trying to address. Congress is looking at there's been bipartisan uh, legislation addressing some of these different issues in tech. You know, the United States is years behind regulating tech. Um, for years, there was kind of a hands-off approach as Silicon Valley continued to grow and actually bring us out of 2008 recession. Um, so the U.S. has kind of been behind on, you know, there's always, there's always these growing pains, these massive new industries. We saw that with the railroad industry. We saw that in 
steel industry, we, you know, we, we saw these, these captains of industry come out 100 years ago, and, and, and you know, we, we eventually came to regulate them and, 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 and learn how to deal with some of the different, you know, externalities, both good and bad, that come with different industries that come out of, of, of development. Um, and, and tech is just becoming a, a new era um, in that uh, we just, we had this hands-off approach as it grew, and, and, and they built the U.S. Econ- the modern U.S. economy, um, and now we're just, we're now we're just now trying to, to catch up with that. That is Tristan Justice, the Western correspondent for the Federalist. And let me point this out to you. No matter what you think of Apple, they cut a rather major deal with China, which is a censorship society because the government insists that it be a censorship society. Apple got into a deal worth about a quarter of a trillion dollars, and they did it with the Chinese Communist government. And that government is very open to censorship. I know the holiday season is just about upon us, and right now seasonal excitement or dread is really starting to settle in, especially for small businesses. Stamps.com is your one-stop shop for all your shipping and mailing needs. For more than 20 years, Stamps.com has been indispensable for more than a million American businesses. Get access to the USPS and UPS services that you need to run your business right from your computer. No lines, no traffic, no hassles. Even save money with major discounts on USPS and UPS shipping rates, up to 86% off. Use Stamps.com to print postage wherever you do business. All you need is a computer and a printer. And if you need a package pickup, you schedule it easily through your Stamps.com dashboard. This holiday season, trade those late nights for silent nights and get started with Stamps.com today. Sign up with promo code Lars for a special deal, a four-week trial, free postage, and a digital scale. No long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the mic at the top of the page and type in Lars. Back in a moment, I'll get to your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. You're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your phone calls and emails in just a bit. But first, I want to talk about what's going on in China. Over the weekend, over the Thanksgiving weekend, there was uh, there were some big developments in China, and I kind of uh, shorthanded them yesterday. I said the Chinese government has gone for a goal of what it calls zero COVID, which I don't think is achievable, not in the United States with a population of about uh, 340 or 350 million people, certainly not in a country as big and as populated as China with 1.4 billion people in it. I don't think it's possible. But the Chinese government has done some crazy things, including literally welding the doors to apartment buildings to prevent people from leaving the building unless authorized and telling people you're going to be stuck in your building or in your workplace uh, if we lock a city down. Well, they did that. One of the buildings caught fire, a big high rise, and at least 10 people died in that fire. And that tipped off a number of protests in about 20 different Chinese provinces, something I'd never seen before. So I thought we'd get Jake Werner on, who's a research fellow with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Jake, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me. So these protests that are going on in China, do they have any uh, likelihood that they're going to bring about any kind of significant change in the communist government when there are people in the streets shouting down with the Communist Party or out with the Communist Party and down with Xi Jinping? It, it, I think it's too early to tell at this point. Um, it, the protests are quite widespread. They, they're taking place in major cities around the country. That is extremely, extremely unusual. Um, protests are actually fairly common in China, but they're, they're generally very localized. So for people to be protesting 
Um, on the same issue across the country, and in particular, an issue that is a signature issue of uh, the president, Xi Jinping, um, that is, is really unprecedented uh, in, in recent decades. Um, but they're not yet, they haven't yet sort of swept all of society up into them. Um, and so there's no immediate threat to the government. But, but this is, you know, a rapidly developing story. We have to, we have to wait and see uh, what direction it goes, if they peter out or if they get bigger and bigger. Well, and Jake, I've, I've seen reports out of China that say the Chinese government is taking this seriously. They've begun some pretty tough crackdowns to try to stop these protests. Am I right? Uh, it, I, you know, in the context of, of a highly repressive government like China's, I would say the response thus far has been fairly cautious. So they've, they've put a significant police presence wherever, uh, wherever protests pop up. Um, but they haven't gone around uh, beating people or uh, sort of like carting off all the protesters all at once. It's been a relatively limited uh, response thus far. Um, but... Uh, again, depending on the course of the protests, I, I would expect significantly increased repression if the protests uh, get uh, significantly bigger. And you mentioned that these are going on in, uh, I said, 20 provinces. That was the count I had seen. But there's a question that wouldn't even occur to most Americans to ask, and that is, how are these all being coordinated? But in a, in a country like China, where the Internet is to some extent uh, you know, uh, curtailed or, or limited by the government and your use of it to communicate either messages or communicate uh, information around that country is somewhat limited by the government. Um, are they able to coordinate these activities in, in all these different cities? Uh, uh, coordinated in the, in the same sense that, that protests around the world have been coordinated in a very decentralized and sort of spontaneous way um, in, in recent decades. Uh, in the sense that people people are able to uh, communicate with each other over the internet, uh, they, there are various ways of getting around the censors. Um, uh, it's difficult, but it's sort of a cat and mouse game, and the censors will always take a little bit to catch up. So people can can spread information around and uh, can all be inspired uh, by what people are doing. For example, one one protest technique is that people have been gathering, holding up blank sheets of paper to indicate uh, the fact that they're not allowed to say anything uh, in, in a repressive society like China. Um, so, so people are sort of imitating, taking, taking hold of the, the techniques and, and, the, and the signals that, that they're seeing elsewhere. Um, uh, and, and, but I think maybe more importantly is that uh, just the sense of discontent is quite widespread. And so, so let me, the, the coordinating mechanism at some level is just that they, they, they are all feeling frustration at, at the policies of the government. Yeah, and, and they've really been under a, a much more draconian measures over the last two years than even the United States has been, correct? Oh, yes. Oh, much, much more. It's, it's, it's hard to, you know, as, as you said, people, people are being forcibly locked in their apartments. Um, entire, like, if you come into very brief contact with uh, someone who is infectious, then then you will be confined for two weeks, um, and and this has affected millions and millions of people. Um, so it, it was actually very effective and and generated a lot of popular support at first. Um, the problem is the the Omicron variant of COVID is far far more transmissible, and uh, it has started to get out of control. So now it's affecting way way more people than previously when when infections were effectively kept under control, and it affected only a small number of people. 
Um, and, and, and it's really affecting the economy as well. So this is, this is hurting people's livelihoods in addition to, uh, to, to keeping them confined in their homes often for weeks on end. All right. Now, I'm talking to Jake Warner from the Quincy Institute. Is there a proper role for the U.S. government in the form of, I, I would go to Joe Biden first and say, should our president be saying something about these people demanding down with the Chinese communist government and, and we want our freedom, we want to be able to speak, should the U.S. president be saying something about this? Um, I, you know, I think that the United States is, is, is kind of in an awkward position here. Um, uh, Biden has made uh, democracy versus authoritarianism the framework for his foreign policy. But he's also pursued a number of measures uh, that, that restrict Chinese economic growth, um, that, that threaten China militarily. And so the Chinese government turns to the Chinese people and says, if you're with the United States, then you're against China. And that has a lot of traction because there are a lot of people in China who, who think that that, that, is, that has credence. So if, if Biden comes out and really full-throatedly supports the demand to overthrow Xi Jinping, which has, has been heard uh, in a few of the protests, um, uh, that, that runs the risk of discrediting the protesters in China amongst Chinese people and limiting the ability for them to expand. So it's, it's an awkward position. So far, the White House has said that they support the principle of uh, freedom of expression and freedom uh, to, to, to gather and protest. They've said that they're doubtful that the zero COVID policy will be effective. Um, I think that is probably it's, it's been a cautious response, but I think that's probably wise under the circumstances. You know, you mentioned that it was somewhat effective, this, you know, zero covid and we're going to lock cities down. And, and the very quick way in which they've done this to, to the point where some workers actually got trapped in their workplaces and were told you can't even go home during a lockdown. Uh, something we didn't even see here uh, in, in any you know, any way that I saw in the United States during the last two years. Um but but has China done much better in controlling uh, an epidemic or a pandemic, uh, you know, by by using these draconian measures? Because from the outside, it doesn't look like they're doing much better than anybody, anybody anywhere else in the world. They, they have done better overall. Um, the the death rate is minuscule compared to the death rate in other countries. Only about six thousand people have died in China versus Ac- well, according to the, the official States, government numbers. Right. Yeah, I, the the official numbers I, I think are, are are reliable at least in scale, right? It's not it's not going to be like a thousand times bigger. Um, so there's no question that the death rate has been much lower, the infection rate has been much lower. Um, the the issue, however, is that with the more transmissible variants, uh, this this strategy is going to be increasingly difficult to maintain, and the Chinese government has not effectively vaccinated the population. So that that leaves, in particular, uh, a huge number of elderly people who are not vaccinated. It leaves them very vulnerable. It sounds like it. Jake, thank you very much. That's Jake Warner, a research fellow at the Quincy Institute. We'll be back in a moment. I'll get to your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, I'm concerned about the jab. I'm concerned about the so-called vaccine that does not stop you from getting COVID, doesn't keep you from transmitting COVID, doesn't even stop you from dying from COVID. In fact, last week I told you the Washington Post finally admitted that 58% of the people who died in the most recent month for which they have statistics, uh, 58% were vaccinated. And if you said, well, I thought the vaccine was supposed to make death less likely. Yeah. Yeah. And you would expect that the roughly one third of Americans, about 30 plus percent, who've decided not to get the vaccine, they'd be the ones most at risk. 
Well, it turns out that the majority, not quite two-thirds, but 58% of those who die of COVID recently um, have died even though they were vaccinated. But there are other concerns as well. And I've told you from the beginning, I decided not to get the jab. And I, I had COVID. Uh, I got over it. It was fine. Um, but there are new concerns that are being raised, including myocarditis in relatively young people. I'm talking about teenagers in this case. And I want to tell you that story. But first, if you want to join the best conversation and talk journalism, it happens right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com and vote in our Twitter poll. You can find that at Lars Larson Show if you don't mind Twitter. And if you don't want to go to Twitter, go to our website. The vote there counts the same. And before I tell you this story that's told by Rav Aurora, who's an independent journalist who writes about COVID specifically in public policy and those kinds of things. Let me tell you this. Since I was a little kid, I have loved science. And for me, science was always a search for the truth. And there were always theories that were the popular theories of the day. And oftentimes there was this kind of orthodoxy where if you were, you know, the folks who subscribe to the current theory of the day. Uh, I often mention the theory that said the earth is the center of the universe and everything simply rotates around the earth, like the sun and the moon and the stars and all that. And of course, we know that's you say, well, that's goofy. We know that's not true. Well, we didn't know it at one point, And anybody who said otherwise was considered a heretic. Um, I think that's happening today with COVID. I think it's happening today with vaccines. Instead of simply searching for the truth and saying, what do we know? What does the data tell us? And as new data comes in, what is the new data telling us? Well, let me refer to this piece by Ray Aurora. May 12th of last year, a school teacher by the name of Emily Joe took her 14-year-old son, Aiden, to get his first Pfizer vaccine dose. And of course, uh, you know, her pe pediatrician had said the kid should get the shot, and that made her decision. She knew the mRNA shots caused some adverse offense. So this was a year ago. So she had some pretty good information, uh, but apparently decided to ignore the possible side effects. At the time, despite alarming heart inflammation reports out of Israel, the CDC had publicly claimed to have found no signs of myocarditis after intentionally investigating over 200 million administered doses. Now, as usual, the CDC has spent a bunch of the last year saying, well, we were wrong about this, we were wrong about that, we lied about this, we lied about that. Emily Joe, the teacher, says she was never warned about myocarditis, about the risk for her 14-year-old, or informed about the risk-benefit profile. She said, when I took Aiden to get his vaccines at the drive through vaccination site, there were no warnings about myocarditis. We were not counseled about any side effects to be aware of. In the name of public safety, scientific innovation, and personal health, Emily Joe sent out a celebratory tweet proclaiming that she and her family were so thankful, this is May of last year, that her teenage son was able to get vaccinated. Her pride and relief turned out to be tragically short-lived. Two days after her son's second dose, which he got a month after his first dose, he ended up in the hospital with intense chest pain. Now, this is a 14-year-old boy. He was moved to a room on the acute cardiac floor. He was found to have elevated levels of troponin, which is a key sign of heart damage and an abnormal electrocardiogram. 
every doctor Emily Joe spoke to at the pediatric hospital, this actually is Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, confirmed her son had suffered from vaccine-induced myocarditis. I've told you about a case involving a young lady from Seattle who decided to get the shot uh, because she wanted to be a room mom to her kids at her kids' elementary school. She actually dropped dead from it. It was vaccine-induced thrombocytic thrombocytosis, I think is the way you say it. Um, In any case, uh, her son was finally discharged, but he hasn't returned to a normal life. Aiden was unable to do physical activity for six months. Sports, hikes, and other forms of exercise were deemed too dangerous for his heart, a typical consequence of myocarditis injuries. Now, you you can hope that this young man, actually when he becomes a young man, recovers fully. Historically, vaccines with adverse event profiles far lower, but they're still deemed too high than the mRNA myocarditis signals. They've been withdrawn. The 1976 swine flu vaccine was pulled back because it had a 1 in 100,000 risk of Guillain-Barre syndrome, an approximate 1 in 3,000 risk of vaccine myocarditis in young males. But the question isn't what the group sees. You say, well, for a group, this is not going to affect very many people. What you care about is the one dose that you get or that your kids get. On that note, let's go to Mike. Hey, Mike, thanks for listening. What's on your mind? Well, I just wanted to clarify one thing um, that you said in the beginning. And I hear it all the time, and it drives me bananas. What is that? People are dying from COVID that have been vaccinated, which is not true. People are dying from the jab. It's not a vaccine. It never was a vaccine. They created COVID so that people would get the jab. They didn't create the jab for COVID. That's what this is really all about. And not enough people are willing to say it or admit it or just understand it or do their research. But this is a massive depopulation agenda. And it I've, 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 heard, I've heard the theory before, Mike. The problem is what I try to, try to go from is if I'm citing stats from, say, CDC that says of the people with COVID, I, 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 of the people with COVID, the percentage who died who were vaccinated was 58% of what the CDC calls the COVID deaths. Now, if you say, well, Lars, you should relabel those and do it on your own say-so. No, I'm not going to do that. Because, Mike, I, I always try to back up my arguments with factual information. I'm not a doctor. I'm not even a scientist. But I read really yeah, well. But, and if CDC says of the people with COVID who died, 58% had been vaccinated, it suggests to me the so-called vaccine, and it's not. Re- and I agree with you there, it's not really a vaccine. It doesn't stop you from getting the disease. It doesn't stop you from going to the hospital. It doesn't stop you from dying. But if you want me to make up my own statistics and say I'm going to change those stats that I use, yeah, I'm not going there. But I appreciate the offer. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Dial me up at 866-HEY-LARS. Naysayers always go to the head of the line. And you're listening to The Lars Larson Show.